Welcome to our 58th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We're your host, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. You know, it's almost Christmas, isn't it? Pretty darn close. Like Christmas I'll tell Eve. you what, this year has went so dang fast. I, you know, it, a lot of it probably has to do for me is that I'm working 12 hour shifts at work and it just flies by. Yeah, it does. It makes the whole week fly by. And so you're either working. Yeah. Yeah, or you're passed out. Working or sleeping. Wow. Yeah. And then we'll have a... They claim, they claim though, that I have about 14 days, and I'm only working 14 days out of a 30-day month, but, man, I'm and, always there And I begged, on the days that I work. And I begged you, for, you know, just to take three days off to go with man. me to go look at some tanks, and when you came back, they were like, get to work. Yeah, yep, pretty much. Well, uh, uh, you know, if we don't get to wish you... Listeners, a personal, you know, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year or Happy Holidays, happy however holidays. you want to right. go about it. We we apologize again. We yeah. I, I say Merry Christmas yeah. just because, yep. you know, I was raised that way. But yes, Happy Holidays. We have to be politically correct. So And hopefully the year 2021 will go a little bit smoother than the, oh, this get, year did. Let's get over this stupid oh, virus. Man. I don't believe Charlie and I has had it yet that we're aware of, but I'll tell you what, I, some of the stories I've heard though, that the people that have had, it's been pretty rough. Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't want, yeah. no, I mean, we've got people dying. Yeah, exactly. Even here in uh, Southeast Kansas in Pittsburgh, uh, the ICU's pretty full. Yeah, the and, hospitals are all filling up and yeah. Well, it hits the East and West coast and then comes in. Yeah. So it does. But. We just want you to know we're, we're praying for you, our listeners. Make sure this skips you totally. We hope it just gets out of here. Yes. Again, we are going to talk about what I talked about in the last episode, the Indo-Pakistani uh, War of 1965. Now, they've been at war a couple of times or had problems for a while. Yeah. But we're going to talk about the 1965. That's the one I want to do my book on. Because I had a couple of messages on Facebook. Hey, man, it sounded like you were trying to say that Indo or the Sand War was, you know, India and Pakistan. I'm like, uh, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I did it, Charlie. Ooh, go crazy, you know. Charlie, make a mistake? No. Nah. <laughs> Charlie's perfect. Uh, whatever. <laughs> These people know better. And, and if you're a first-time listener, hey, welcome. And, uh, yeah, I make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> Russ has to point things out. Oh, uh, talking about pointing things out, what's our first point for today? What are we talking about? We're going to talk about the M36 Jackson Tank Destroyer. Isn't that the, just the Sherman with the Tank Destroyer gun? You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> well, let me explain. The Jackson or the M36 tank destroyer, formerly the 90-millimeter gun motor carriage, the M36, was an American tank destroyer used in, well, used during yeah. World War II. Yeah, I know it's been used in other wars. The M36 combined the whole of the M10 tank destroyer, which used the M4 Sherman's reliable chassis and drivetrain combined with sloped armor. 
and a massive new turret uh, mounting the 90mm gun, the M3. Conceived in 1943, the M36 first served in combat in Europe in October of 1944, where it was partially replaced with the M10 tank destroyer. It also saw use in the Korean War, where it was able to defeat any of the Soviet tanks used in that conflict. Some were supplied to South Korea as part of a military assistance program and served for years and did re-engined examples uh, were found in like Yugoslavia, which operated into the 1990s. But two, this is, cr- this is crazy, two remained in service in the Republic of China Army at least until 2001. Can you believe that? Wow. An old M4 with the 90mm turret, the Jackson, and it was still in service till 2001 in the Republic of China Army. That's crazy. But it it, ran and shot, so. Yeah, you know what? The other thing I found out is, you know, I've been talking about this Indo-Pakistani War of 1965. They served in that. Holy cow. So, Russ, take us into more detail. U.S. combined arms doctrines on the eve of World War II held that tanks should be designed to fulfill the role of forcing a breakthrough into enemy rear areas. Separate GHQ tank battalions would support infantry in destroying fixed enemy defenses, and armored divisions would then exploit the breakthrough to rush into enemies' vulnerable rear areas. U.S. tanks were expected to fight any hostile tanks they encountered in their attack, but the mission of destroying massed enemy armored thrusts was assigned to a new branch, the Tank Destroyer Force. Tank Destroyer units were meant to counter German Blitzkrieg tactics. Tank Destroyer units were to be held as a reserve at the Corps or Army level and were to move quickly to the site of any massed enemy tank breakthrough. Maneuvering aggressively and using ambush tactics, charging or chasing enemy tanks was explicitly prohibited to destroy enemy tanks. So you said a mouthful there, and basically what its doctrine is, the army is going to move forward and they're going to make a little breakthrough. And then our regular tanks, which were the Shermans, would race through that opening and destroy any tanks that are, you know, back there in the back. Yeah, yeah. But if they decide to blitzkrieg and move all their big tanks in, our tanks were supposed to go, whoa, 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 you know, break off to the sides, let them come in to our well-camouflaged tank destroyers with 90 millimeters and taking out these enemy tanks, which, yeah. of course, you know, yeah. was the Axis forces. So that makes sense. You know, I, I it, really wish I could get my teammates to fall for this in the World of Tanks game. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> we love... It, yeah, the World of Tanks game is neat because it actually shows you how this is supposed to work uh-huh. with the tank destroyer staying you know, in, the, in the back in the back of the map. But, uh, but I'll tell you what, it don't always work like that because not everybody knows these tactics. Uh, if you've ever played any video game, you're yeah. always going to have what we call noobs. Yeah. And, and you're positive that they're playing the game by smashing their forehead oh, on the keyboard. I, I know. But anyway, that's just my take on the game and, and how it's helped me, you know, learn some of these tactics. Right. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Russ. This actually led to a requirement for very fast, well-armed vehicles. 
Though equipped with turrets, unlike most self-propelled anti-tank guns of the day, the typical American design was more heavily gunned, but more lightly armored, and thus more maneuverable than a contemporary tank. The idea was to use speed and agility as a defense, rather than thick armor, to bring a powerful self-propelled gun into action against enemy tanks. See? That's actual doctrine, not what so many of these keyboard historians say, oh no, that's not what they were for, bless their hearts. But that's what tank destroyers are supposed to do. Yeah. There's a breakthrough. They set up in camouflage, you know, on the crest of hills. They get the flanks of them and start putting rounds into them. You know, that's their job. That's it. But you're going to have people call in and say, no, no, that's not what a tank destroyer yeah. Is used for it's used for a push. Our actual doctrine says don't yeah, chase him. Exactly, pretty explicit. But you know, you're always going to have those guys. Oh yeah. With the advent of heavy German armor such as the Panther and Tiger, the standard U.S. tank destroyer, the M10 tank destroyer, was rapidly becoming obsolete because its main armament, the three-inch gun M7, had difficulty engaging these new tanks frontally past several hundred yards. This was foreseen, however, and in late summer 1942, American engineers had begun analyzing the potential of designing a new tank destroyer armed with a 90mm gun. This study resulted in a prototype vehicle, the 90mm gun motor carriage T-53, which placed the 90mm gun in an open mounting at the rear of an M4 Sherman chassis. In August 1942, it was agreed to immediately produce 500 vehicles, with 3,500 more later. The tank destroyer force objected, arguing that the design of the T-53 was too rushed. The 90mm gun motor carriage T-53E1 proved to be even worse, and the entire contract was canceled. The Sherman was ready and able, but they needed something a little better. You know, what do we always say? You fight with what you got. You know, you, you make do. They saw that our 76s and our 75s and 105 howitzers weren't doing a lot against these Tiger twos. So they said, hey, we have a reliable chassis. Let's just make this weird turret and put a 90 millimeter. A 90 millimeter is a good gun. Exactly, yeah. You know, I don't care who you are and you're like, oh, 90 millimeters junk. For World War II, yeah. that was a pretty good gun. Maybe junk today, but during that time period, it was pretty top of the Absolutely. line. Absolutely. But we're going to get people saying, no, uh, no, no, 90 uh, millimeters junk. Russell, just give me some stats on this thing. It was designed by the U.S. Army Ordnance Department in 1943. It was manufactured by General Motors, Massey Harris, American Locomotive Company, and the Montreal Locomotive Works. The unit cost was U.S. dollars of $51,290. And that's equivalent to about $744,917 in the year 2020. So back then, it cost about almost fifty-two grand, And then in today's term, it's what, $745,000? Yeah. You know, so how many did they produce here? They produced about 2,324, including all different models, between April 1944 to May of 1945. They weighed about 63,000 pounds, or 32 short tons, at a length of 19 foot 7 inches, or 5.97 meters, with just the hole. And the length, including the gun, was about 24 foot 6 inches, or 7.47 meters. With the 90 millimeter, it's pretty pretty long. Oh, yeah. 90 millimeter gun, they were pretty long guns. 
It had a width of 10 foot, 0 inches, or 3.05 meters. And I had a height of 10 foot, 9 inches, or 3.28 meters. So it's over 10 foot tall. Yeah. Just like my Lee. Hey. Hey. So the Jackson is 10 foot tall and a a little bulletproof. Yeah. So what kind of crew did this thing have? It had a crew of five, which included the commander, the gunner, a loader, a driver, and an assistant driver. The armor was anywhere between 0.375 inches to 5 inches thick, or 9.5 to 127 millimeters thick. And the main armament was a 90 millimeter gun, M3. And carried about 47 rounds on board. The 90mm gun M3 could fire five different types of ammunition. Those included the M77 AP-T shot, the T33 APC-T shot, the M82 APC-HE shell, the M71 HE shell, and the T30 E16 HVAP T shot. HVAP. Nice. Now what kind of second armament are we talking about this? It had secondary armament of a 50 caliber or 12.7 millimeter Browning M2HB machine gun. They carried about a thousand rounds of it on board. It had an M36B1 Ford GAA V8 gasoline engine, cranked out about 450 horsepower at about 2600 RPM. Okay. Had a power to weight ratio of 15.2 horsepower per metric ton. The transmission was a synchro mesh, five forward speed and one reverse speed. The suspension was the vertical volute spring suspension. Or the VVSS. Had a fuel capacity of 192 U.S. gallons or 727 liters with an operational range of 150 miles or 240 kilometers. That's pretty good for a bad, yeah. yeah. And a maximum speed of 26 miles per hour or 42 kilometers per hour on the road. All right. You know, it's reliable. Yeah. It's got a good gun. Doesn't have a lot of armor, but... When a, break, when a breakthrough happens, yeah. they camo it up yeah. and wait for a target, and then boom, yeah. that target's done. That's it. That's TD doctrine. So I know some of the 90 millimeter ammo could uh, pierce the nose of a panther at like 950 yards. Normally, we would get into the combat history of World War II, but I think this is more interesting. Uh, let's talk about the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965. Uh, it was a accumulation of skirmishes that took place between April 1965 and September of 1965 between Pakistan and India. The conflict began following Pakistan's Operation Gibraltar, which was designed to infiltrate forces into Kashmir to precipitate an insurgency against Indian rule. India retaliated by launching a full-scale military attack on West Pakistan. The 17-day war caused thousands of casualties on both sides and witnessed the largest engagement of armored vehicles and the largest tank battle since World War II. I know we're jumping from, you know, what we were talking about, shooting a panther in the nose and going through at 950 yards to jumping into 1965, but this Jackson was in this battle and I'm so interested in it and I kept getting it you know confused with everybody last episode. Yeah. Russ, let's talk about our second point now. Tell okay. us some a little bit about this. All right. 
Much of the war was fought by the country's land forces in Kashmir and along the border between India and Pakistan. Most of the battles were fought by opposing infantry and armored units with substantial backing from air forces and naval operations. The 1965 war witnessed some of the largest tank battles since World War II. At the beginning of the war, the Pakistani army had both a numerical advantage in tanks as well as better equipment overall. Pakistani armor was largely American-made, it consisted mainly of M47 Pattons and M48 Pattons, but also included many M4 Sherman tanks and some M24 Chaffee light tanks, and also some M36 Jackson tank destroyers equipped with 90mm guns. The Pakistani had more, you know, tanks. Yeah. But their World War II Shermans, the Jackson, Chaffee, and then they've got, you know, the M47 and the 48 Pattons. Yeah. Which were fairly newer yeah, to them. Yeah, newer. Okay, go ahead, Russ. I'm sorry. The bulk of India's tank fleet were older M4 Sherman tanks. Some were upgunned with the French high-velocity CN75-50 guns and could hold their own, while some newer models were still equipped with the inferior 75mm M3 L-40 gun. Besides the M4 tanks, India fielded the British-made Centurion tank, the Mark 7, with the 105mm Royal Ordnance L7 gun, and the AMX-13, the PT-76, and M3 Stuart light tanks. Holy crap. Okay. So <laughs> in 1965, man. In 1965. The M3 Stuart the, the Stuart's still oh, out in the field. Wow. With that little 30 gun. You man. Know, and we talked about my, my favorite tank, this AMX-13. Yeah. But also the Soviet-made P uh, PT seventy six, yeah, you know the APCs yeah, with yeah. the little turret thing. Yeah. They've got this whole force, and now they've went in to India or, or disputed territory. Yeah, and and these two monsters are about to fight. So, and the crazy thing is that territory that all this happened in is still disputed today. Yeah, Kashmir. Uh huh. Uh huh. And we're not taking sides. No, no, not at all. We're not taking sides. Just you know, taking the facts. Taking the facts, and that's what we're supposed to do here. Yeah. Pakistan fielded a greater number and more modern artillery. Its guns outranged those of the Indian artillery. So they've upped their guns for artillery pieces. They're probably Indian. India's using, you know, whatever they can get. Yeah. Sure. So this has turned out to be kind of ugly. And we're talking like 1965. Yeah. I'm sorry. I know. At the outbreak of the war in 1965, Pakistan had about 15 armored cavalry regiments, each with about 45 tanks and three squadrons. Besides the Pattons, there were about 200 M4 Shermans rearmed with 76-millimeter guns, 150 M24 Chaffee light tanks, and a few independent squadrons of Jackson M36B1 tank destroyers. Most of these regiments served in Pakistan's two armored divisions, the 1st and 6th armored divisions, the latter being in the process of formation. The Indian Army of the time possessed 17 cavalry regiments and in the 1950s had begun modernizing them by acquisition of 164 AMX-13 light tanks and 188 centurions. The remainder of the cavalry units were equipped with M4 Shermans and a small number of M3 a3 Stuart light tanks. India had only a single armored division, the 1st Black Elephant Armored Division, which consisted of the 17th Horse, or the Puna Horse, also called 
Pride of India. The fourth horse, Hodson's horse. The sixteenth, Calvary. The seventh, Light Calvary. The second, Lancers. The eighteenth, Calvary. And the sixty-second, Calvary. The two first named being equipped with centurions. So they've got 188 centurions. And they've got 164 of these AMX 13s. I, I don't want to debate this, but if I had to fight and I had to choose a Patton or a Centurion, not trying to make anybody mad, uh, I'd take that I Centurion. Don't... And if you had the choice between going out in a Stewart or an AMX 13 with a 12 round mag, yeah. Yeah, 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 let's go with that. I know. On the edge, if you're looking at it, Pakistan's got more tanks, India's got the Centurion, and the AMX-13s. Yeah. But the other thing you got to throw in there, too, is the training. What kind of training did both sides have? You're right. Because without the training and the know-how to run these things, I mean, yep. the it, experience. It, the man makes the tank. Yeah. There was also the 2nd Independent Armor Brigade, one of whose three regiments, the 3rd Cavalry, was also equipped with Centurions. Despite the qualitative and numerical superiority of Pakistani armor, Pakistan was outfought on the battlefield by India, which made progress into the Lahore Silkot sector, while halting Pakistan's counteroffensive on Ameristar. They were sometimes deployed in a faulty manner, such as charging prepared defenses during the defeat of Pakistan's 1st Armored Division at Asal Uttar. See, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. They had the tanks, but some of the officers in the field weren't sure... Or weren't properly trained. so On the tactics of the armor that they were so, using. So India got its Centurions and its AMXs and everything else dug in and waiting for them to come. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the AMX-13's, you know, whole yeah, thing. It is. They're yeah. like, hey, we're going to race yeah. out there, get camoed, and when you pop up, we're going to let you have it. Yeah. After India breached the... Madhupar Canal on September 11th, the Kim Karan counteroffensive was halted, affecting Pakistan's strategy substantially. Although India's tank formations experienced some results, India's attack at the Battle of Shawinda, led by its 1st Armored Division and supporting units, was brought to halt by the newly raised 6th Armored Division in the Shawinda sector. Pakistan claimed that Indians lost 120 tanks at Shawinda compared to 44 of its own. Neither the Indian nor Pakistani army showed any great facility in the use of armored formations in offensive operations, whether the Pakistani 1st Armored Division at Asal Uttar or the Indian 1st Armored Division at Shawinda. In contrast, both proved adept with smaller forces in a defensive role, such as India's 2nd Armored Brigade at Asal Uttar and Pakistan's 25th Cavalry at Shawinda where the Centurion battle tank, with its 105mm gun and heavy armor, performed better than the overly complex Patton's. Okay, like we were talking about, Pakistan side, they had the Patton M47s and the 48s, the M4s, the Shafis, uh, the, even the Jackson tank destroyer. And the Indians had the M4 Shermans, but the Centurion Mark Seven, which is a great tank, the AMX-13, which is a great little tank, light tank, uh, the PT-76, um, which isn't really a tank, but still really effective against, you know, lighter, sure, lighter tanks. Yeah, yeah. And the M3 Stewart. Now, Russell, you mentioned a few tank battles in this war to start off. Start off with the Battle of Philior. 
The Battle of Flora was a large tank battle fought during the Indo-Pakistani War 1965 It commenced on September 10th when the Indian 1st Armored Division with four armored regiments and supporting forces under command attacked positions in the Salakot sector held by Pakistani 6th Armored Division. After three days, the Pakistanis withdrew with the loss of 66 tanks. 31 were confirmed. The Indians admitted to the loss of six centurions. The battle commenced on September 10th. 10th, 1965, when Indian troops launched a massive attack in the Flora sector headed by Indian 1st Armored Division. Okay, so the Pakistanis are like, we we lost 66 tanks. They're talking about their Shermans and stuff like that because these Centurions were ready to rock and roll. And there were some patents in there, and they did lose, what, six centurions? Yeah, six centurions. So if you lose six tanks and I lose 66, yeah. I got a bloody nose and I need to get out of yeah, there. Yeah, you've got some issues. Equipped with four armored regiments and with a motorized infantry brigade attached, the division faced stiff opposition from the Pakistani 6th Armored Division. Pakistani aircraft attacked the Indian forces. Their tanks suffered little damage while the supporting transport and infantry columns were harder hit. Over the next two days, there was intense fighting before the outnumbered Pakistani troops made a tactical retreat towards Shawinda. At this point, India claimed to have destroyed 66 Pakistani tanks. They're talking about the Pakistanis started using air power, and I think they're basically doing strafing tactics. And if you're not shooting missiles and you're not dropping bombs, Strafing tanks, yeah, okay, but where are you going to do your major damage? Exactly, you're going to yeah. go after your soft targets. Yeah, uh, guys, your supplies, there, supply yeah. trucks, ammunition. Yeah. yeah, guys going to the mess hall to grab something to eat. Yeah, all of a sudden the airplane flies in and machine guns everything. That's tearing up the lines. That is fuel trucks. Sure. So that's causing all sorts of problems. But in the end. Pakistan loses 66 tanks, and they're like, eh, we're, yeah. we're, they're going to push again, and we got to get out of here. On 12 September, the battle ended in a decisive victory for the Indian Army, with the Pakistanis forces retreating and regrouping, like you said. Uh, a day before, the Indian Army had experienced another victory at Assal Altar, where they successfully thwarted a Pakistani offensive in the Kim Karan sector. So, Russell, tell us about this battle. The Battle of Assal Uttar was one of the largest tank battles fought during the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965. It was fought from September 8th to September 10th, 1965, when the Pakistan army thrust its tanks and infantry into the Indian territory, capturing the Indian town of Kim Karan, five kilometers from the international border. The Indian troops retaliated, and after three days of bitter fighting, the battle ended with the Pakistani forces being repulsed near Asal Uttar. Factors that contributed to this were the fierce fight put up by the Indian army, conditions of the plains, better Indian tactics, and a successful Indian strategy. See, that's what we were talking about. You can buy a man a tank... And he might know how to drive or turn it on and shoot the gun and drive in a straight line. But when you train the tank commander in tactics, how to hit, aim at weak spots, that's how you're going to be more effective. Exactly. 
So even though you might be in a better tank, yeah, if you got somebody that knows what they're doing, they're going to smoke you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Russ. So there's a lot more to armored warfare than just being able to drive a tank, shoot a tank. Right. Strategy. Tactics. This battle is compared with the Battle of Kursk in the Second World War for how it changed the course of the India-Pakistan War of 1965 in India's favor. War historians, including Dr. Philip Toll, regard the Indian resistance near Kim Karan as one of the key turning points of the war, one which tilted the balance of the war in favor of India. Peter Wilson states that the defeat of Pakistan Army in the Battle of Assal Uttar was one of the greatest defeats suffered by Pakistan forces in the course of the Indo-Pakistan War of 1965. Pakistan's invading force, consisting of the 1st Armored Division and 11th Infantry Division, crossed the international border and captured the Indian town of Kim Karan. Considering the situation, Indian 4th Mountain Division immediately ordered the division to fall back and assume a horseshoe-shaped defensive position with a solitar as its focal point. In the night, the Indian troops flooded the sugarcane field, and the next morning, the Pakistani tanks of the 1st Armored Division, consisting mainly of M47 and M48 Patton tanks, were lured inside the horseshoe trap. The swampy ground slowed the advance of the Pakistani tanks, and many of them could not move because of the muddy slush. Over 100 Pakistani tanks, mostly Pattons, and a few Shermans and Chaffees, were destroyed, and another 40-plus captured, while the Indians, by their account, lost only 10 tanks during this counteroffensive. Pakistan admitted that it lost 165 tanks during this battle, led to the creation of Patton Nagar, or Patton City, at the site of the battle. This is because a large number of Patton tanks fielded by the Pakistani forces were either captured or destroyed at the scene. Wow. 165 tanks left out there, so they call it Patton City. Apparently, those are still out there today. Wow. Now, they've taken the ammo and yeah, stuff out, yeah, but the sure. shells are still, or the hull or husk yeah. of these Pattons and, and these other tanks, Shermans and whatever they had, but 165. Sad, yeah. but, but wild. I know there was another huge loss of tanks in the Battle of Berkey. Tell us about that battle. The Battle of Berkey was a battle fought by Indian infantry and Pakistani armor in the Indo-Pakistani War 1965. Berkey is a village that lies southeast of the Lahore near the border with Punjab, India, and is connected with Lahore by the bridge of Ikogil Canal. During the fighting, the relative strengths of the two sides were fairly even, and Indian infantry clashed with Pakistani forces that were entrenched in pillboxes, dugouts, and slit trenches that had been carved into the canal banks. The Pakistanis were supported with a large number of tanks as well as fighter jets. The battle resulted in an Indian victory. India began their advance from Kalara under Major General Har Krishan Sibal and tank operations under Lieutenant Colonel Anat Singh with a village called Jaman being the first major Pakistani outpost to fall. Pakistani troops pulled back toward the next major town, which was Berkey, leaving small pockets of resistance at each village to slow down Indian advance. The Indians had, had just killed 165 tanks, making this Patton city. And then they got the Pakistanis moved into another area, and they called for backup, and these guys come charging across. Oh, this is going to be nasty. Yeah. Tell us more. 
On September 8th, Pakistan began the counterattack with Pakistani artillery pounding the Indian advance on September 8th, 9th, and 10th. This constant shelling slowed down the Indian advance, but was unable to stop it completely. This was followed by a counterattack by Pakistani armor consisting of considerable part of Pakistan's 1st Armored Division. Indian infantry eventually clashed with Pakistani tanks at Berkey, which resulted in most of the Pakistani armor being damaged or destroyed by September 10th. So they send, you know, they're fighting on this canal, and the Pakistanis get most of what they have in their tank forces and shove them forward. But the infantry is hiding in bushes, setting mine traps, RPGs, you know, bazookas, and they're tearing these guys up even before they get to the Indian tanks. Yeah. This is getting good. Yeah, it is. The Indian infantry was able to hold off the Pakistani armored units until Indian tanks from the 18th Cavalry Regiment arrived. They were then able to subsequently launch the main assault on September 10th with armor support. As most of the Pakistani tanks had already been incapacitated, the Pakistani defenders had little armored support from the remaining tanks. A few Pakistani fighter jets were called in to provide air cover for Pakistani troops and to target Indian positions. However, the use of fighters to perform ground strafing against ground troops instead of bombers with bombs and missiles meant that little was achieved through air support. See, uh, now that's what we just talked about. Yeah. They're, they're, they've got the little jet fighters, and they're looking for air-to-air combat. So the Indians are being a little bit more careful with their air power, but they're saying, hey, we're, we're having these tanks and everything. You need to go strafe them. You, you need to destroy them. We don't have bombs. We don't, that's not our fighter job. Surprise, yeah. we're not bombers. Exactly, yeah. Su- surprise, we don't have air-to-ground missiles. The limited number of jets and the easy availability of trench and defensive structures for cover added to the ineffectiveness of Pakistani air operations. As a result, after intense fighting, Indian infantry captured Berkey on September 11th and held it throughout the rest of the war despite the use of defensive structures like trenches and pillboxes as well as anti-tank weapons by Pakistani defenders during the defense of Berkey. Again, you're using the terminology, whoever has air superiority. Well, you can control the air, but you got to be able to damage what's on the ground. Yeah. B- besides machine gunning. You know, when we say, well, we have air supremacy, that means none of their airplanes are even coming close. Yeah. And anything underneath, we're destroying. The A-10 Warthog, if they'd had... 15 or 20 of those, that'd have been a totally different battle. It would have. So in this battle again, was very lopsided. The Pakistanis lost a hundred tanks destroyed or abandoned and Indian lost three, three tanks. That's what I'm saying. Tactics, you know, and, and how you're doing it. The Pakistanis have now lost an additional hundred tanks. And Indians lost three. Incredible. It really is. Okay, Russ. So tell me about the big battle of, uh, how do you say that? Shawinda? Yeah. The aim of the attack was to seize the key Grand Trunk Road around Wazirabad and to capture Jasoran, which would enable control of the Salkat Pasur Railway 
thus completely cutting off the Pakistani supply line. The striking force of the Indian 1st Corps was the 1st Armored Division supported by the 14th Infantry and 6th Mountain Divisions, and Indian Infantry seized the border area on September 7th. This was followed by a short engagement at Jishorin, in which Pakistan lost 10 tanks and ensured complete Indian domination of the Sakat Prasur Railway. Realizing the threat, the Pakistanis rushed two regiments of their 6th Armored Division from Sham to the Salakat sector to support the Pakistani 7th Infantry Division there. These units, plus an independent tank destroyer squadron, amounted to 135 tanks, 24 M47 and 48 Pattons, about 15 M36B1 tank destroyers, and the remainder of Sherman medium tanks. Or Jackson. So they've got whatever Jacksons they have left. They've got the Shermans, whatever they've got left. And basically whatever patents they have left, and they're going to make a big push. You got to tell us, this is getting really good. Man, the majority of the patents belong to the new 25th Cavalry, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Nassar, which was sent to the Shawanda area, fighting around the Gigor village between the Indian 1st Armored Division and the Pakistani 25th Cavalry Regiment, resulted in the Indian advance being stopped. The Indian plan was to drive a wedge between Salkat and the 6th Armored Division. In fact, there was only a single regiment there at the time. The Indian 1st Armored Division's drive quickly divided with the 43rd Lorried Infantry Brigade, supported by a tank regiment attacking Gat, while the main blow of the 1st Armored Brigade was hurled against Falara. Pakistani air attacks caused moderate damage to the tank columns, but exacted a heavier toll on the truck columns and infantry. The terrain features of the area were very different from those around Lahore, being quite dusty, and the approach of the Indian attack was evident to the 25th Cavalry by the rising dust columns on the Sharwa Flora Road. There's the key. They were fighting around the canals and places of camouflage and stuff like that, but now they're around, you know, dirt roads that are dusty, not a lot of, you know, cover. And these guys are going in, in the open. Well, their aircraft sees them, they strafe them. You know, they're knocking tracks off and, you know, putting holes, you know, in certain spots. But then their fuel trucks behind them, uh, the ammunition trucks, they're taking a beating. Yeah. So now it's really, they're like, we're getting low on ammo and we're getting low on fuel, even though we had enough to begin with. But now these air forces are tearing us up. The Indians resumed their attacks on September 10th with multiple core size assaults and succeeded in pushing the Pakistani forces back to their base at Shawinda, where they were stopped. A Pakistani counterattack at Falora was repulsed with heavy damage, and the Pakistanis settled in defense positions. The Pakistani positions at this point was highly perilous. The Indians outnumbered them by 10 to 1. However, the Pakistani situation improved as reinforcements arrived, consisting of two independent brigades from Kashmir, the 8th Infantry Division, and most crucially, their 1st Armored Division. For the next several days, Pakistani forces repulsed Indian attacks on Shawinda, a large Indian assault on September 18th involving India's 1st Armored and 6th Mountain Divisions was repelled, with the Indian 1st Armored and 6th Mountain Divisions taking heavy losses. So the Pakistanis are dug in. The Indian generals are like, we've had some great victories, we've destroyed, we've had landslide. Go, go, go. Push, push, push. And they're like... Uh, we're having some heavy losses. 
well, okay, keep pushing. You know, when, when your ground troops are saying, hey, we're having problems. We're actually having some heavy losses. You might want to take a break, let everything stabilize, but they didn't. On September 21st, the Indians withdrew to a defensive position near their original bridgehead with the retreat of Indian 1st Armored Division. All their offensives were ceased on that front. Pakistani generals vetoed the proposed counterattack, Operation Windup. According to the Pakistani command and control, the operation was canceled since both sides had suffered heavy tank losses, would have been of no strategic importance, and above all, the decision was politically motivated, as by then the government of Pakistan had made up their mind to accept ceasefire and foreign-sponsored proposals. The Indians push to just shove them clear back and wipe them out has stopped. They've dug in and they're losing tanks. They're losing men. They're losing trucks. They can't go anymore. So in that battle, the Indian forces had 150 tanks and Pakistan had 225. But at the end, India lost 120 of those 150s. And they lost all their Shermans, from what I understand. Man. And, you know, mm. you're talking about the Amex 13s or Centurions, but they had lost all their Shermans. Incredible. That's 120 tanks. Yeah. On the Indian side. Oh, yeah. And the Pakistan lost 44 tanks. That's still a big hit. Yeah. And apparently all their Shermans were taken out and, and a few of the Pattons. Wow, it's sad. Yeah. You know? If India hadn't used their Shermans and used the Centurions and the AMX-13s, things could have been different, I bet. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, they had their Shermans, and they're like, push, 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 and, yeah. and they were getting wiped out. And, and 150 yeah. tanks. Uh, Russell, tell me about the actual losses. What are we talking about, you know, even men-wise? Yeah, India had 3,000 men killed, 75 aircraft destroyed, 190 tanks destroyed. Pakistan lost 3,800 men, 300 tanks, and 20 aircraft. Again, Pakistan had better yeah. aircraft. Yeah. You see 75 aircraft yeah. knocked out by the Indians. Yeah. So they had air superiority, Yeah. but you know they were fighter-based. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about the Indians lost 190 tanks, and the Pakistanis lose 300 yeah. tanks. That's a total loss of that's, yeah, that's 490 tanks. And I, I got to put you in the Battle of Kursk. Yeah. Okay. During this armored battle in 1965 between India and Pakistan, they had a total loss of 490 tanks. That is just 10 tanks under the 500 lost by the Germans in Kursk. I only mentioned the German losses because the Soviet losses like that was, what, about 1,500 tanks? But for perspective, 500 is the total loss of what the Germans had. So the Germans pushed into Kursk, and, of course, the Soviets had, like, 1,500, and they beat them back. This is 10 less than what this battle occurs. 490 tanks destroyed. You know, if you're a treadhead like us, you're going, wow. Man, I know. Just a great episode, Russ. Yeah. You know, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. Uh, like I said, I want to write a book on this. I, I'm starting to research it. If you have any relatives or you have any documentation about this, please message us uh, through our uh, Gmail. What is our Gmail address? Two tankers and cat? Yes, at gmail.com. Okay, excellent. Yep. Or, or Facebook. 
we'll we'll take it. You know, like I said, uh, this will be you know kind of a long project, and it'll give me an excuse to finally go over hey, to India and Pakistan. There you go. As soon as stupid Corona. Oh, I know. Let's talk about our Patreons, and I guess wish them uh, happy holidays. Kim Shire, uh, Riley, Jacob. Zaki? You know what? I'm going to learn to say that poor <laughs> guy's will. name. Jacob, I, I don't mean to do that, and I know I, I know you're listening and you're laughing. You're like, man, that Charlie really is mixed up in the head. Uh, Michael Kalb, Razbaz, Evan. Antonio Bernarda. Slam Jamington. Alejandro Martinez. Bjorn Ben. ODS Thero. And everybody's favorite, Rick Schmidt. Rick Schmidt. Guys, we want you to know that we've really had fun this episode. Uh, we hope you enjoyed learning about the Jackson. And we're sorry that we were starting to talk about the World War II aspects and Panthers and all of a sudden jumped to 1965. <laughs> but when you figure that those yeah. Jacksons were part of the 490 oh, tanks lost. Incredible. What a waste. Jacksons and Shermans. and oh, Stewarts man. and Chaffees. Oh, wow. You've got a mix of modern, yeah. old, you yeah. know. And now I'm starting to research the aircraft that the they had. The incredible thing is, what is still out there? Th- that some governments... That's still using. Are still they still using. using Shermans? Are they still using Taffy's? Are they, I mean, hey, yeah, you it's know, a very big possibility. And we probably won't know until they're shot and killed in a in upcoming some, war sometime. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, like we were talking about. Uh, it's incredible. Our Argentina with the Stuarts. Yeah. You know, adding that. I know. Uh, this... History is such oh, a great thing. man. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and we hope you have a happy holiday. This is Charlie. And this is Russell. As always, happy tanking, and have a great week. We wish you a-